If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We are continuing our, our series through the book of 1 Samuel. If you remember what's happened so far, Samuel has been called by God, has, been, has begun to follow him. Uh, last week, your last sermon that I preached in this book, uh, we were dealing with uh, the ark of God being captured by the Philistines. And then uh, if you watch the video this week, each week, if you, if you don't remember, there's a video that goes up where I kind of explain what goes on between sermons and along with the recommended reading. And so last week's recommended reading uh, led you up to 1 Samuel chapter 8 where we're at today. But a quick summary of that, in the time uh, that, so the, the, the ark has been captured and great afflictions come among, among the Philistine people. They move it from one city to another, great afflictions happen there as well. And so they decide, we need to send this back to where it came from. We've got to get it away from us because there's terrible things happening to us. And so uh, the, the interesting way they decide whether it was God that did this or whether it was a coincidence is they put it on uh, two cows and, and hook it up a cart to two cows, say, all right, if it goes to the Israelites, uh, it was their God that has done this to us. If it goes somewhere else, then uh, it was a coincidence. And it goes straight back to Israel. And so they, they, re- they receive the Ark of the Covenant, and they are lamenting after the Lord. They're realizing the error of their ways. Samuel says, hey, if you're turning, put all these, t- tear down your idols, they do it. And all the days of Samuel, he operated as a judge among the people, and they followed after the Lord. And then we get to the point where Samuel is getting older. So we we really skip a large period of time in chapter 7 where the people repent and turn back. And then Samuel now is old, entering the end of his life. So that's where we pick up today in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read the whole chapter, so stay with me. It's important, okay? We're we're going to do it together. So when Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. Does that sound familiar? It's the very first chapter of this book. Anyway, the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the, the, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Again, that should sound familiar. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, so you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. And to, hit, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain 
and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the other nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us that we can come together and just to look at your word and what it says to us. And as we see the way that things repeat themselves in in the story of Israel, and as we see the way things repeat themselves in our lives, I pray that we will be able to accurately examine ourselves, to examine the lives we live, to see the foolishness of the people of Israel, to see the way that they err, and to see how often we are prone to the same things. I pray that you'll help us to evaluate how we should live, how we should be faithful to you, and how if we will do that, we will be blessed, and how we can avoid going in the wrong direction. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us. Help us to focus solely on your word today. Remove all distractions from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see here the repeating of the story, right? At the beginning of this book, Eli had grown old and his sons did not walk in his way and were abusing their office. And so the Lord called Samuel to replace the sons of Eli. But now here we find Samuel has become old, and he's faithfully served as a judge all of his life, but his sons did not walk in his ways. And it's that first part, I think, that we need to focus on as we begin. Your legacy, in many ways, shows the quality of your work. Your legacy shows the quality of your work. So what does that mean? Samuel did good work as a servant of the Lord. He went, it said, every year from city to city and judged the people of Israel. He was faithful. He called them to repentance. He helped lead them from following idols and led them back to the Lord and and was faithful in this way. But his children did not grow up to know the Lord. This is a repeating story that we see in Scripture. We often see the people coming from a place, seeing God move, And then they turn from the Lord. They forget what the Lord has done. And and because of what he did, because of his sons being disobedient, there was room for the people to seek a disobedient solution. They asked for a king because his sons didn't walk in their way. He left room for that. So we see the importance of the legacy that we leave. I think the first place we see the legacy of biblical parenting. If we look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." So there's no real indication here whether Samuel is at fault for the way his children turned out. It doesn't say that Samuel neglected his children. It doesn't say that Samuel instructed his children well. 
But what do we see? His children grew up not to know the Lord. So what we can know from this is the importance of raising our children to know the Lord. Now, when I say this, there are often times Christian parents that despite their best efforts, their children do not walk in the faith. That very well could be the case. Samuel very well could have taken his children with him as he went and judged, taught them to love the Lord, and they were taken captive by their own sinful desires. But it's also possible that perhaps Samuel was so preoccupied with his duty as the judge on behalf of God that he neglected to teach his children and allowed others to influence them, others that had worldly desires. So when he traveled, were his children with him or were they being influenced by others? So what I'm saying, I'm not, propo- I'm not proposing that if your children do not walk in the faith or are not active in their faith that you have failed. I'm not proposing that. I'm not saying that this morning. You are not responsible for, your, for their actions, but you are responsible for yours. And so as we think about how we raise children, as we think about what we want to do in this, there are some things that we should consider. There's an example a modern example. It's very timely to what we're, we're looking at this month. So there's a man named Bob Pierce. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Well, it will in a, in a few moments. So he was a youth pastor in, in the 1940s, turned to a missionary to China. And he went there and thousands of people came to Christ. And he came back and he was so moved by what he saw, the need in the orphanage, the orphans across the world, that he founded a, a, a ministry called World Vision. And so if you've ever been to uh, a... Uh, to Winter Jam in particular, or a lot of other places like that, you will see the, the places where you can adopt a child, where you send money monthly and you, you help support these children all across the world. It was founded uh, by Bob Pierce. F- founded World Vision, traveled the world, was very active in this ministry. After a period of time later in his life, his, his, the, the ministry's vision with the board and his vision differed, and so he was no longer with that company. He founded another ministry called Samaritan's Purse, which is what Operation Christmas Child goes through. He was a very dedicated man that came with a cost. The majority, about 11 months of the year, he was not at home. He was traveling. And, and it took a toll on his family. They were, one of his children uh, took their own life because they were in this state of, of despair and depression. Not to say that he could have prevented that, but they did call and ask him to come home, and he wasn't able to because of his commitments. And he ended his life estranged from his family, his wife. They didn't divorce, but they were separated for a period of time. That does not in any way, and I'm not sharing this with you, in any way to undercut the wonderful work that he did for the Lord. The work that he did in his life carries on. We see that today with what we continue to do. These huge ministries that he was instrumental in that helped accomplished great things for Christ. But he did neglect one of his duties, the duty to his family, to ensure that they were raised appropriately. I want you to consider these passages. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his, his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he, take, how will he care for God's church? Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
So there's a couple different passages that have been put together here. And, and the first one in 5.8, that one's talking about all Christians. All Christians ought to provide for their household. We should, all, we should work and make sure that we are taken care of. That is our responsibility to care for our own as Christians. The second passage we saw was in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. That's talking particularly of overseers is how it's often termed. We usually use this as qualifications for pastors. In churches that have elders, they use this as their qualifications for elders. And they are, it is reiterated that they should, have, that they should help manage their own household. Because if they can't manage their household, how can they manage the church? The third one, father, this is, I think, to all fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in what? The discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's a clear call in Scripture that if we have children, we should raise them to know the Lord. We should teach them what we know about the Lord and raise them to be Christian children who will grow up to have and raise their children to be Christian children. This is what we're called to do. And again, we don't know specifically whether Samuel did or did not do these things. Did he neglect his duty? Was he too preoccupied that he neglected these things? We don't know. But what we do know is it's what we are called to do in our lives. So we've specifically dealt so far with parenting in this first portion, but I think there's another part of our legacy that we can think about, and that is that if we have Christian, if we are a Christian, we should be able to see the reproduction of ourselves into others. Sometimes it definitely should be our children. If you have children, you should reproduce your faith into your children. Not that they claim your faith, but that they have an active faith of their own. But that's not an excuse to not do that if you don't have children or your children are already grown. You should still actively be reproducing your Christian faith in other people. What do we call that? Discipleship. Discipling others. You should actively be discipling others. We must replace ourselves in the faith. If we think about what, what is to come in the future and we don't prepare for that, what, what, is, what is going to happen? We see it over and over again in Scripture. Then a generation arose that didn't know the Lord. Why? Because they were not taught appropriately to fear the Lord. They were not raised to know the Lord in the way that they should. They forgot about what God had done in Egypt. We see God talk about this, the continued rebellion from the day they were brought out of Egypt till now. They have chased after worthless things. We can't rely upon ourselves being able to do it all. Because what's going to happen? How's this, how's this passage start? When Samuel became old, an unfortunate reality of life is we are all going to grow old. And there's a time, as Samuel did, where we have to pass the baton to others to do the work that we have devoted our lives to. The problem comes up when there's no one to pass the baton to. How do we make sure there is someone there? Part of our life's work, part of what we do is not just the work we are called to, but training and equipping others to do the work. I, went, I got the, the ability, uh, it was about a month or two ago, to go to this generational pastors conference. And the whole purpose of it was put on by the, the state convention. The whole purpose is this idea of, of pastors that have faithfully served, finding out how to appropriately pass the baton to younger pastors as they come up in. And um, Al Mohler spoke at this, and what he said it was, was so wonderful. Many people look up to the Apostle Paul. They want to be like the Apostle Paul because he did great things for the Lord. 
But who did the Apostle Paul have in his life? Timothy. That he raised and taught. Where do we see these, these, these verses we looked at? In Timothy, where he's teaching him how to build churches, to help lead churches. And he said, if you don't have an, a Timothy in your life, you are not the Apostle Paul. If you don't have people you are investing in in your life, there is a part of your command, part of what your work is in this world that you are missing. If you're not investing in others, you're missing out on what part of what God has called you to do. So your legacy shows the quality of your work. And as we see here, he left room because of this for the people to seek a disobedient solution. You see, the problem is that because Samuel's son didn't obey him, there was a problem. They couldn't be the judges of Israel. They were taking bribes. They were perverting justice. They were doing the wrong things. Now, the thing that is so strange about when we look at this, we're like, how do they miss it, right? The, this story began with the same thing. Eli judged Israel. His sons didn't know the Lord. What did God do? He raised up Samuel to take their place. So presumably, what could God have done in this situation? Raised up another to take their place because they did not follow the Lord. What do the people do? They use a good, a, a, a real problem to insert their wrong motives. And so your actions show your heart. The things you do show where your heart lies. Right? So they were accurate in, in discerning that his sons were not fit to be the judges of Israel. They were doing wrong things. They were chasing wrong actions. They had a right to, be, to complain about his sons. But their solution was awful. The thing that they proposed, a king over Israel, was awful. And so it says that... that they, the thing displeased Samuel. Let me, let me read it in particular. But the thing displeased, this is verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So I've shared before how when I was finishing up my MDiv, I had my Hebrew 2 class, and it was the one time where I really didn't procrastinate in school. And I got done several days early, and it really paid off because my entire computer uh, just stopped working, and I lost everything I had. And I had thankfully turned this 20-something page paper in the day before it happened. And that, pa that paper was over this chapter. In this place where it says, the thing displeased Samuel, I don't really feel like it's a very good translation. In the original Hebrew, it says, the thing was evil in the eyes of Samuel. They said an evil thing when they asked for a king. Why was it evil? Well, we see what the Lord has said, right? They have not rejected you, talking to Samuel, but what have they rejected? They have rejected me from being king over them. What are the people asking for? They're saying, we want a king that we can see. We want a king that is with us, that will fight our battles for us. What a slap in the face this was to the God who had been king over them and fought their battles for them. Part of what I left out at the beginning of this was when the ark comes back and the people are celebrating, I don't know how, how much more foolish you can get than the Philistines because they see the people of God celebrating after they have returned the ark of God to them because it was causing such terror among them. As they, as they see them celebrating, they're like, oh, this is a good time to attack them after they've already seen how powerful their God is. And so what happens? 
As, they, as the Philistines draw close to attack them, the Lord intervenes. It says the Lord intervened on their behalf. It's, it's in verse 10 of chapter 7. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. They were defeated before Israel. Verse 10 of chapter 7. The Lord fought their battles. The Lord was their king. He judged among them. He, he worked among them. And they rejected him and what? Asked for a king. So the thing that they asked was evil. So what did they really, what, were, what were they proposing? So they were in a system where they had judges. Right? So there was the people and there was a judge among them. And, and that's the, the key thing to see here. The judge was not necessarily elevated among the people. He was not operating as a king. He wasn't asking for, for tribute. He wasn't asking for the, these things. In fact, the people that asked for special favors, took advantage of their position, they were seen as evil. That was the problem with Eli's sons. That was the problem with Samuel's sons. They were among the people, but they were the mouthpiece of God. They were judging on behalf of God, working with God. And when Samuel did something, who did he ask first? God. Samuel didn't say, in and of myself, I say these things. He spoke on behalf of God. So the judge was a, 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 a conduit for the people to follow and obey God. So they want to reject this system that God has given them. And they've asked for a king. Now, in theory, it would be the same thing. There's the people and then the king instead of a judge. And then God would be above the king because God is above all. But the problem is, is that the king in and of himself on this earth had authority over the people. So you have a good king leading the people all as well. But as we see all throughout the rest of Israel's history, what happens when you have a bad king? They demand the worship. They demand the praise. They demand the respect. They take and abuse the people, as Samuel says, that will happen to them. And the Lord will not answer them in that day. They were warned their king would take their sons, take their daughters, take their land, their best land, take their servants. And they would regret it. And the Lord won't answer. Even after this warning, they still wanted a king. This is what happens to us when we choose lesser things. So we often see the word of God. We view it as a burden. Well, God's word, and there's people that might have this idea, this, this mindset. There are people that, that would look at God's word and say, well, it's just a bunch of rules that want to keep me from having fun, from living the life I want to live. It's not true. It doesn't exist to be a burden, but to give us direction on how to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. But here's the thing that not, not surprising, a life that is holy and pleasing to God is the one that will be the most fulfilling life we can live. That will also minimize the harm we inflict on ourselves and others. I want to be clear here that God's word sets his standard for how we should live. The Bible does not say, do not do this or do this. For, for any other reason other than it's wrong. When the Bible says, do not murder, it's not just because if you murder, there's going to be a lot of consequences to that. It says not to murder because it is an affront to God. It is sin. It is wrong. It is evil. But what, what else do we know? If you murder someone, what's going to happen? There's going to be about 15 people that want to murder you. So it's, it's not a, it's, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. That if you will obey God and do what is right... You also avoid the consequences of wrong actions. It's not mutually exclusive. 
When you look at what God has said is, is right for marriage and, and what is right for how you should live your life in, in a pure way, it excludes a lot of other living. And we know the effects of these things, of how when we disobey God's design for marriage and we, we have relationships all outside of that, there's a lot of harm that comes along with that. That's not why he tells us not to do it. But it's also beautiful that the most fulfilling marriage you can have is when you obey God's design for marriage and his rules for how we should live as single people or people that are married or whatever it may be. You see, the way that Satan operates, the way that sin operates in this world is that the lesser thing always promises to be bigger and better than it will be. Right? Sin is always enticing. The whole idea the grass is greener on the other side. If, oh, if only you will do this thing, then you'll actually be happy. All the things that are around you right now, that's what's weighing you down. If you free yourself from that, then you'll be happy. It's seductive. It's, it's something that tries to lead you astray. I tell you, good marketing does not make a good product. There was this um, toy, it was really a toy when I was a child. It was called Fushigi. I don't know if you ever remember it. And what it was was a, a kind of a clear ball, but inside of it had like a smaller ball that was a little more opaque. And the commercials, it made it look like this ball was levitating, almost like anybody could kind of do like, like this, this cool trick with it. And a lot of people ordered it because it looked really cool in these commercials. But you know what it was? It was just a ball. There was nothing special about it. It was really good marketing. And there was actually like a class action lawsuit about false advertising in those commercials. Good marketing doesn't make a good product. And when, when the enemy see, tries to, to lead you into something that, oh, this will be good. You, you'll be happy if you'll get this. You, you chase these things, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. And you get it and you realize the message you've made for yourself. Because the reality is, just like the people of Israel sought after a king, they thought, oh, these other nations have a king. We'll be better off if we have a king. It looks good to them. Even though they're warned, even though they've been given advice by the mouthpiece of God among them, no, we shall have a king, is what they said. And the Lord grants the desires of their heart. And the Lord will grant the desires of of your heart. Here's, here's again what it said. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They utterly rejected the Lord. The Lord is their king, but they want an earthly king. They are called to be distinct, set apart, holy among the nations. They want to be like the other nations. The Lord judges them and fights their battles. He just did it. But they want a king to judge them and fight their battles. This was not new. The people lived in continuous rebellion from the day they were brought out of Egypt. They get into the desert. They were provided manna from heaven. I'm tired of this manna. They are, Moses is going to speak with God. Let's build an idol. Over and over again, they reject God. 
How can we understand this? How can we understand the rejection they are portraying towards God? There, there's a prophet, a book in, in, in the Bible named Hosea. And Hosea is commanded to take a wife that was, her, her profession was of ill repute. She was a prostitute. And so she takes, he takes as his wife, Gomer, what does she do? He, he brings her from this place of sin and where she's having to do these terrible things just to stay alive, brings her into a place of safety and security. And what does she, what does she do? She leaves him and goes back to her old way of life. How, 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 that is what we do when we turn from God to chase worthless things. That is what the people of Israel did when they said, give us a king. We need a king They had the thing that they were working for. They had the thing that they desired, the thing they could not attain on their own and rejected it for something lesser. And the Lord, through his word, the Lord warns us. He gives us clear indication of what will happen should we be disobedient. Just like he told the people of Israel, this is what's going to happen to you if you have a king. Give us a king. The Lord tells us what will happen to us if we disobey. We've all experienced this in our life. So we were on vacation this week. And one of the unfortunate things is beautiful weather down in Pensacola. Right? The, that was not where the storm went, but, but there was one problem. Uh, the beach or the, the ocean was full of jellyfish. Like I'm saying every five feet you saw a jellyfish. And there were two different kinds. There was these big purple ones. They were really easy to see, but there was also really clear ones. They were kind of hard to see. And we told the kids that were there, we said, hey, don't get in the water because there's jellyfish, and the jellyfish will sting you and it will hurt. What is, what is something that you know about kids? Especially young kids, they don't listen very well. And so Eliza was having so much, she was so excited to be there, and she got into the water. And we would say, get out, there's jellyfish. She got stung. Now luckily it really wasn't that bad, and she recovered very well. She was back out there like 30 minutes later, and guess where she also went after that? back into the water. Luckily, no one else got stung that week. But what do we see time and time again? Maybe you, I, I can almost say without doubt, either you have received good advice and not listened, or you have given good advice and seen the hor- hor- horrendous effects of them not taking it. When we receive good, sound, godly wisdom, we should listen to it. And especially when we see something in the Word of God, we should listen to it. But the thing is, God will allow us to have the desires of our heart. When you want to chase worthless idols, he'll allow you to, and you will reap the benefit. You see, there's this popular, but incorrect, uh, depiction of Jesus in, in the world of, as almost, Jesus is like an ethereal hippie. Just this guy that was all peace, love, and happiness all of the time. And he taught some good things. Um, But he was all about just everyone loving one another. And he did speak a lot about loving one another. He spoke about the greatest command. We saw the greatest command in Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, right, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He spoke about those things. These are good things. Most people agree with that. But he only spoke a lot about hell and the punishment that awaits those who disobey God. 
that go their own way. He would often say, don't do these things, and he would share what happens to those who do those things. In reality, Jesus spoke more about hell and punishment than he did heaven, especially the description of them. He didn't describe heaven all of that much, but he did describe hell. So why did he do these things? As a warning. Samuel was told, give them a king, but tell them what he will do to them. We are allowed, God allows us to sin. He allows us to to chase things other than him. But he tells us very clearly, if you do these things, if you walk in this way, if you don't repent, if you choose your own way, here's what awaits you. Eternal torment, unquenchable fire where the worm does not die, weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness from which there is no return. And there's times where people have, have... focused on these things and, and maybe ignored the grace of God to some extent, but I, we, we can't ignore it because this is God's warning to what awaits those who do not repent, who choose the lesser thing over God. He describes it this way so that God will tell us what will happen if, we continue in, if people continue in their present course of action. He presents the alternative, but ultimately allows people to continue in their sin if that is what they are determined to do. Romans 1 described this very well in Romans 1, 21 through 25. For, all they did, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and for their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we can learn from the people of Israel here is that through His Word, through faithful men and women in our lives that have have taught us and instructed us, we know the eternal God. If you're sitting here today, I'm telling you, there is an eternal God who created you, who created this world, who, who loves you, that even though you were dead in your sins, made a way for you to be alive in Christ Jesus because of what Jesus has done for you, Jesus, God in the flesh, who died on the cross, taking your punishment, what you deserve, so that you could be made right with Him. You're hearing this today. You may have heard this long ago. But we have to decide is if we are going to submit to God to be the King of our lives, to repent of our sins, to turn and follow Him, or if like the people of Israel, we're going to say, I want to be like the people, the other nations. I want to be like the other people down the road, they do all they want. They live their life the way they want to, and they seem like they're having a good time. That's what I want. The Lord will allow you to do that, but He shares with you what awaits. And at the same time, maybe you have submitted to Him as Lord of your life. Don't forget what He's done. 
Don't forget the way that He has saved you, the way He's worked in your life. Follow Him faithfully in your life. Don't chase after worthless things, created things. Don't take the blessing and elevate it over the one who gives the blessing. And if you're a parent or if you are a Christian, are you investing in what your legacy will be? Because there's going to come a day when no matter how faithful you serve, you can no longer serve God. Your body will give out. It's the truth of all of us. Are you investing actively in other Christians? Your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, whoever you have influence over, are you sharing the truth of God with them? Are you sharing this truth with them? Friends, family, neighbors, are you teaching people to follow the Lord, to serve the Lord, so that one day when you're not here, they're faithfully serving the Lord? And have you taught them in such a way that when they are getting older, they will teach others to follow the Lord. That's what we're called to do. So where are you today? Are you leaving a legacy? Are you doing those things? Investing yourselves in others? I, I would so much rather be known for the people that are known from the ministry I do in my life than the things I did in my life alone. Right? There's, there's people that you can look back and, and, and there's people you don't, we don't even know their names of that discipled people, that discipled people, that led people to the Lord that did great things. If we do great things alone and don't reproduce ourselves into others, we're not leaving a legacy that matters. Are you leaving a legacy? Where is your heart in regards to God. When you're placed with a, a good problem, are you seeking the Lord or are you seeking your own will like the people of Israel did? Have you surrendered your life to Him this morning? Have you been saved? Have you repented of your sins and, and, and turned in faith to Him alone and trusted in what Jesus has done that He was crucified for your sins, raised from the dead? Are you following him or going your own way? In a few moments, we're going to have a time of invitation. And I want to invite every person in here because we all have ways where we can faithfully follow God more each day. Where in your life do you need to be more faithful in following the Lord? Where are you chasing after things that you shouldn't? Where do you need to let your affections be changed by what God is calling you to do? And if you don't know him, if you have questions about whether you know Him, don't wait. Today is the day to respond to what God is doing. I'll be down front for prayer or if you have any questions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank You for this day that You've given us and this time that we can come together and, and look at Your Word. And God, I pray that we would learn from this story with the people of Israel and how they rejected You as King and wanted to be like the other nations. God, I pray that we will see the importance of investing ourselves into others and, and following you faithfully, not turning away from you. God, I pray that you would convict us in our lives where we fall short of following you faithfully, where we, where we need to turn back and, and, and honor you and glorify you and give you the position you deserve in our lives. 
And Father, I pray that if any do not know you this morning, if they have been relying on their own ability or their own, uh, whatever it may be, their own goodness, they would realize that the only way they can be saved is what, through what you have done in providing a way of salvation through Jesus on the cross. Move among us now, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.